Hi, I'm Jordan. And I'm Kit. Welcome to Starry Time, where stars plus lines equal stories. On this month's podcast, we are going to be visiting Libra, the weighing scales of the night sky. Libra is the only member of the zodiac constellations that is named after an inanimate object. Even though 27 of the other IAU recognized constellations are either named after inanimate objects or something even as simple as shapes. Yeah, so about 30% of those IAU constellations are are named after objects or or shapes. That's going to be plenty of fodder for future seasons on our seemingly mundane objects in the sky. Those will be everybody's favorite seasons. Sure. Um, But similar to our discussion of Virgo, this constellation of Libra hasn't always been known as the scales. In fact, even though our guy Ptolemy identified it as part of his great 48 constellations, it wasn't actually called Libra. It was called Chelai or Claws, usually meaning the Claws of Scorpius, as we'll discuss next month. Which is interesting, because artwork from around the same time as Ptolemy's Almages showed this constellation as Libra, or the Scales. But basically, Ptolemy preferred the ancient Greek tradition in his own work. Even as the depictions started to shift around the first century BC, especially in Rome and among the Romans. Yeah, and so in Gavin White's Babylonian Star Lore books, um, they point out that this is likely due to the precession of equinoxes Mm. and the change in the position of stars over time. So the stars that now constitute Libra moved into the part of the sky that's now associated with the autumn equinox. Perfect, which makes Libra a pretty good reminder that these constellations are indeed culturally bound and not fixed in any real substantive way. There are a lot of ways, a lot of ways, to look at the night sky. Absolutely. But here at Storytime, we're putting our trust into the IAU, which is the international body that defines and names the constellations. All right. So when you looked at this constellation, Kit, what did you see? Claws of a scorpion? A scale? Something else completely different? Well, honestly, it looked like a little house to me, Um, one that was maybe a little crooked and about to fall down. Um, If you turn it upside down, I guess you can kind of get something scale-like, but a scale that looks very unbalanced. That's not a scale I'm going to trust. So uh, how about you? What did you see in this this, uh, constellation? Yeah, definitely the house was what I saw first. I think it reminded me of like a kindergartner's drawing of a school or something, where it's like it's all the angles are kind of wrong, but they got the roof right. Um, and then I looked at it from a different angle, and I was like, it kind of looks like one of those kites you see at the beach that has like two lines of string attached to them and do like all sorts of acrobatics and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I was remembering those, and those were the two things that I thought of most of all. But definitely the house, school, that type of thing was what I saw. Didn't really see any claws, didn't really see any scales, Mm. but, you know, maybe I like the imagination of the ancient group. Um, So despite the fact that Libra is an actually fairly decent-sized constellation... It's 29 out of, of course, the 88 IAU-recognized constellations. Mm -hmm. It's a really faint constellation, so it's going to be kind of hard to find this one unless you're someplace pretty dark. Hit, does that mean it's time to get 
technical. Let's get technical. Technical. <laughs> Perfect. Libra's right extension is 15 hours and 30 minutes, and its declination is negative 15 degrees. It's visible between December and August in the Northern Hemisphere, and it's high in the night sky around 9 p.m. in late June, which makes that the best time for you to try to find it and see it. Perfect. So now we know when and where we can find Libra. We have a vague idea of what it looks like. Can we talk a little bit more about the stars that comprise this constellation? Yeah, so like we just mentioned, the stars in Libra are really dim. The brightest apparent magnitude in this constellation is only 2.6, and that's the star Beta Libri. Oof, yeah, that's pretty dim. Like we discussed in episode 7 on our good friend Cancer the Crab, it's going to be pretty tough to see something with 2.6, even if you're a small city, even if it's technically visible to the naked eye without binoculars. Yeah, and so that's the brightest one in this entire constellation. So I thought it might be kind of fun for us to focus this month on the three Bayer-designated main stars that have the brightest absolute magnitude instead of brightest apparent magnitude. Ooh, we're changing it up. All right, we're getting a little unpredictable as we make our way through the zodiac. I like this. <sighs> no one has ever called me unpredictable, but... <laughs> hey. Um, and I do want to be clear that we're going to limit ourselves to the stars that are part of the constellations uh, itself, um, rather than just any objects in the constellation's borders. Okay, great. Yeah, that's an important distinction to make. Okay, so we start off with Tau Libri. Tau Libri has an apparent magnitude of only 3.66, but has an absolute magnitude of negative 1.59. It's a spectroscopic binary, and the primary part of the binary is a B-type main sequence star that's seven times the mass of our sun. And the, yeah, it's big, but the coolest thing about the Tau Libri is that it's known as a heartbeat star system. Oh, wait, a heartbeat star system? Walk me through that. Sounds awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's got a great name, so the branding is on point. And I hadn't heard this term until I, I learned about Tau Libri. So heartbeat star systems are basically binary star systems where you can map out the brightness over time and you end up with a chart that resembles an electrocardiogram. Wow. Okay. So like a graph of the heartbeat. Exactly. So what's going on in these systems is that they're, of course, orbiting each other, but when they get closer together in their orbit, gravity pulls them into an ellipsoidal shape via tidal force, and that creates a change in their brightness. Which then creates the up and down patterns that are similar to a heartbeat. Right, that idea of thub-dub, thub-dub. Well, now I've learned about heartbeat star systems. Oh, wait, heartbeat stars? Heartbeat stars. Heartbeat stars. Yes, yeah. of course. Well, that's a great addition to our ever-growing constellation lexicon. <laughs> the second absolute Bayer designated is called New Libre. It has an absolute magnitude of negative 1.45, according to the most recent calculations from 2007. Its visible magnitude, however, is 5.2. And it's an orange to red giant star that has a radius that is estimated to be, get this, 41 to 45 times the radius of the sun. Very big. 
The third absolutely brightest Bayer designated star, there's a lot of qualifiers there, um, is Sigma Libri, which is another binary star system about 288 light years from Earth with a absolute magnitude of negative 1.5 and a visible magnitude of 3.29. Sigma Libri is the third brightest star by visible magnitude as well as by absolute magnitude in the constellation. It's the third brightest, and that's at 3.29. And again, remember, the higher the number, the dimmer it is. So that's a pretty dim star. Yeah, you're going to be, again, and need to be in a small city or a rural area to be able to see it uh, from Earth. So the main component is a red giant that has the official name Brachium, which means upper arm. And this same star was actually originally designated as Gamma Scorpi. So it used to be a part of Scorpio before. Exactly. And the IAU changed its designation in, a, in 1930. Wibbly-wobbly-starry-wary. Okay, okay, moving around. Now it's where it's always belonged. Yeah, so those are the Bayer-designated stars with the highest absolute brightness. But are they the best? Are they the coolest? Are they the most fun stars or space objects in this constellation? We're going to find out what Jordan thinks and what she chose as her gold star of this month when we get back. Welcome back to our segment called Gold Star. In this segment, we alternate picking the star or space object in our constellation of the month that captures our heart, our minds, our souls... And this month, Jordan's up. So what did you pick in our constellation Libra that really um, won you over? Well, my choice for a gold star this month is actually a blue straggler star. What's Ooh, a blue, blue straggler? straggler? Yeah, what's a blue straggler star? Well, we can get to that in a little bit. But first, mm -hmm. let me give you the star's very memorable name. Okay. It is HD128429. Oh, lovely. I love it. So this is a binary star system, and it's only 88 light years from Earth. Hmm. And a blue straggler is a type of star that displays a lot of anomalies that are kind of a challenge for us to explain through the normal star formation process. It's usually formed in a star cluster, and we can't tell why it appears so much younger or bluer than all the other stars that apparently formed at the same time as. So these blue straggler stars, they can either be siphoning off energy from other stars or siphoning off mass from other stars to appear younger than they are. Some of the clickbaity titles about these types of stars calls them cannibals or vampires mm. or stars that have found the fountain of youth. But mm -hmm. either way, these are kind of stars that are out of place in their cluster. All mm -hmm. the rest of the stars around them are usually red giants, yellow giants, and these ones somehow are straggling along. Well, it's got a great name, and it definitely reminds me of our discussion about how we find out the ages of stars that we talked about in our last episode on Virgo. And so this idea that when we look at clusters of stars, it's pretty easy for us to figure out how old they are because we assume that they're all formed at the same time. We use the HR diagram, which we definitely remember stands for... Hertzberger's Sprinkles. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, oh, wait. Uh, no, Hertzberg Russell. What is it? Hertzsprung. Hertzsprung Russell. Yeah. Yep. Perfect. Uh, yeah. And... So, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I, I even just looked at it uh, within the past 15 minutes, and that was still the best I could do. So we use the HR diagram, and so basically it's really interesting to have these stars that they seem too young for the population that they're in. And, like, I love those, like, headlines. I love the idea of, like, trying to create clickbait around a, like, astronomical phenomenon. That's very funny and also true. But it, it does seem like one of the common hypotheses is that they're somehow absorbing mass from some other way because that's how stars stay young because part of their aging process is using up the mass um, that they have. So yeah, that's really cool. And and I know there weren't a, lo a lot of options in Libra, so I'm glad we got to learn about blue stragglers. And, um, and I think they're kind of a neat reminder of how stars, the sort of evolution that stars go through. Exactly. And like how stars can have these anomalies, right? This is mm -hmm. a mass transfer that's converting a very old star into a much younger star somehow. And we don't quite understand how yet, other than a basic mass transfer. But besides that, it's kind of a, like you said, or like the headlines say, it's like a cannibal or it's like a vampire or it's like the fountain of youth. We have all these great ways of kind of trying to find the metaphor that makes the most cultural sense to us for the scientific phenomenon that's going on. Well, welcome to the gold star of the month club, Blue Straggler H. HD1284294. And now you try it. H. <laughs> pretty good, pretty good. Yeah, well, we'll have to give it a new name. Well, I'm so glad we have got a new gold star that's actually a blue star to add to our collection. And I think with that, we're going to move right along into the myths and retellings. Welcome back. It's now time to start talking about the myths of Libra. So what do you know about this one, Kit? Well, I knew it was a scale. Yup. But I knew a little bit more uh, about the myth because it came up for our research with our research from last month that this constellation was associated with Astraea, the virgin goddess of justice. So I did know that. So you cheated. Um, I'm, you know, I'm just really resourceful. Sure, sure, sure. No, no, I remember reading about the Astraea myth, too, mm -hmm. and I remember saying that this is, like, the cleanest one of all the Virgo ones, but it tied so much into the scales that we kind of decided that we wouldn't really have much mythology of the scales if we left it in with Virgo, right? Exactly, and there was so much going on. If you listen to the Virgo episode, lots of sort of chaotic stories that wasn't really sure who we were talking about, that it seemed like maybe it would be best to withhold Estrella, um because of her association with the scale itself for this episode instead. Exactly. So tell us a little bit about Estrella's myth. Okay, so first we need a quick refresher on the ages of men in Greek mythology. And I'm drawing on Hesiod's works and days piece here. So in Hesiod's retelling, there are five ages of man. The first is the golden age when the Titan Cronus ruled. In this age, things were just so good. Humans walked with the gods, 
nobody aged. People died when they died. They died peacefully. It was spring all the time. There was food. There was peace. Everything was just golden. Yeah, it's like the best possible Garden of Eden you can imagine. Exactly. Very idealized. So during this time, the first age, the golden age, Astraea is born. She is the daughter of Astraeus, the god of dusk, and his wife, Aeos, the goddess of dawn. Astraea is something like Cronus's grandniece, and she is the goddess of justice or the goddess of purity and innocence, depending on who you ask. So the golden age ends when Zeus, our good friend Zeus, Mm -hmm. overthrows his father Cronus. And the next four, (laughs) always. So the next four stages are all under Zeus's rule, and they include the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Heroic Age, where we find our good demigod friends, and then the Iron Age. And there's a lot more we can talk about with all these ages, but basically the the overarching takeaway is that through the ages, humanity just gets worse and worse. And so by the Iron Age, which is when Hesiod sort of says, like, we are currently in the Iron Age, this is right now, life is just hard and unbearable. Pretty miserable, yeah. Miserable. He predicts, Hesiod predicts, that Zeus will soon destroy humanity. And according to Ovid, when we reached the Iron Age, Astraea has has sort of lived with the humans for all this time. But by the time she reaches the Iron Age, she is so horrified by the state of the world and humanity, she fled the Earth to live in the stars, where she became Virgo, holding the scales that we refer to as the constellation Libra. So she becomes Virgo holding Libra, the scales. Virgil and other poets speak of a time when Astraea will return and humanity will return to the Golden Age. Perfect. So we got a lot going on here. Of course, we have some sort of resurrection myth here about a return from the gods to usher in a Golden Age. And then there is some sort of connection between Astraea and other goddesses like DK and Themis. But those stories aren't really linked to any overarching story or narrative about how these scales actually got into the night sky. Yeah, so there are some alternative tellings of this myth where Virgo is some of these other folks, and that has to do with the scales, but it's most common that that Astraea is the one that is now Virgo, and she holds the, the scales of justice. Perfect. Another pretty interesting myth and association related to Libra comes from Babylonian astronomy, where the constellation was linked to balance and the autumn equinox, when the days and the nights were of the same length. Mm, balanced. Yeah, you got it. They were balanced, precisely. The scales were also associated with the sun god Samus, also known in Sumerian as Uta. In their mythology, the sun god was also the god of truth and justice, because the sun god could see all and thus know all truths. Okay, yeah, so basically two sets of myths. We have the Astraea myth, and then we've got um, the sun god balance types of myths. Before we get into our analysis, I think I'd like to take a brief detour up the stairs to the archaeology attic, where we explore some of the history and fun facts about the inanimate object of the night sky, which in this case are the scales. Well, scales, like we've talked about before, this is the only inanimate object in the zodiac. And it's one of those objects that can be traced all the way back to the Bronze Age. 
So when is the Bronze Age? That's about 3300 to 1200 BC. And we actually have written evidence in murals and paintings of scales before we've actually found archaeological evidence of the scales themselves. And these uh, scale images can be traced all the way back to around 2300 BC in Egypt. So that's the first time we see these weighing balances, which also have a real strong and spiritual significance. The Egyptians, of course, believed that the god Anubis would weigh the hearts of the deceased when deciding who was worthy of entering heaven. So around 2300 BC, we find these murals that show the scales, even if we don't have evidence of the scales themselves that far back in Egypt. So the most ancient relics that we found of weighing scales actually can be traced to about 2000 BC, so not much long after, in present-day Pakistan, near the Indus River Valley. And these weighing scales, they were made out of, guess what, bone and <laughs> antler. And of course they were used in ancient times by merchants because they have to develop a way to assess the values of goods you know, crops, clothing, gold. We also have found scales in China. The earliest ones were made of wood and used little bronze masses. And we found those in a tomb that goes back to the fourth century BC. And then the interesting thing that I found was after these first weighted scale balances were made, they do get slight improvements up through ancient Greece and Rome and then they pretty much remain unchanged all the way until the 18th century. <laughs> so yeah, right. that was some of the interesting things I found about scales. And of course, you know, for currency and for trade, being able to tell whether or not you're being ripped off or getting a fair exchange has been a pretty important part of human civilization um, ever since we developed agriculture and cities themselves. Yeah, so I'm going to take us back down the stairs. I appreciated learning some about the history of scales. Uh, I did not know some of the, how long they've been around and how, like, they stayed pretty much the same for a long period of time. So that was super interesting. Um, but it kind of makes me think as we sort of return back to the myth that it sounds like this item was something that was used to keep merchants honest and to, you know, get people an equitable trade. And so it makes me think of this myth with Estrella that you wouldn't have needed these scales in the golden age, right? Exactly. Because, right? Like, exactly. Everybody's provided for, you know, it's a utopia, etc. But as the ages pass, you know, Estrella notices humanity is sort of getting worse and worse and and in need of a tool like the scales to keep people honest, to divvy up these resources that are more finite as the ages go on. So I, it kind of like fits in with the myth to a certain extent as well, the Greek myth. Can't, that's why you're the best. You're able to pull all the threads together here. And I think just as we can draw parallels between the scales use in merchant exchange, we can also see the use of scales as a symbol of justice as the world becomes more complicated and people become more suspicious of each other and perhaps there's more power hierarchies and corruption, mm -hmm. scales are needed more and more to understand sides, to weigh the problems, 
and to highlight the need for objective and fair assessment. And for both the ancient Greek and Babylonians, there was also a god or goddess of some kind, since humans themselves couldn't be trusted with this task. Yeah, they had to have this like impartial system that wasn't swayed. And it was something that, like you said, just like couldn't be trusted to humans themselves in these civilizations. There's another interpretation from Gavin White's Star Lore book that I got for a, a holiday gift, uh, which I'm obsessed with. And what they propose is that there was a need to demarcate the seasons. So maybe the scale also comes into play and is associated with the sun god in Babylonian lore as a as a discussion of, right, the balance between day and night, related again to that procession of the equinoxes. And so in this interpretation, it's a lot less symbolic, but it does help us, I think, think practically about why the scales end up in the sky and why in Babylonian star lore they're associated with the sun god, having to do with the balance between the days and the nights. Perfect. In the end, these stories and this constellation we can see might have served multiple purposes simultaneously and can be flexible as societies change and grow. And who knows, maybe one of our wreck constellations to come will be one of the mainstream uses of the scale in the future. Mm -hmm. Welcome back to our segment, Rep Constellation. In this segment, we reimagine, reboot, and revise the myths of our monster constellation in hopes to modernize it, or subvert it, or perhaps even deepen the story. Or sometimes, we're just trying to make it a little less cringy than the original version. So alright Kit, walk me through, what was your rec constellation this month? So I was thinking a lot about Astraea's myth, and something I kept wondering about as I was sort of reading about these ages and reading about Astraea's leaving, was I, I kind of wanted to know what Astraea was up to between the Golden Age and the Iron Age, right? So is she out there trying to like save humanity? Is she out there trying to aid its downfall? I don't know. Like, we don't know much about her. So in my retcon, I'd like to just know more about her. And because we don't have enough, like, hero narratives about women, um, I want her to be sort of trying to help the people of the world, but simply being unable to overcome the corrupting influence of Zeus and the other Olympians. So she's sort of in this battle because she's, again, this sort of precursor goddess relative to Zeus in this sort of generation before. And so... She just can't overcome, you know, what's happened under this new regime. I want to title it The Adventures of Astraea. I just want to know what she's up to, what kind of antics, what kinds of heroics she's up to. And I think that the ending stays the same, that she eventually leaves. So it's, it's going to be a little bit of a sad, a sad tragedy. But I think it would be really interesting to dig deeper into what she's got going on. I completely agree. I want to know what's going on with Estrella for this time too, right? Because she doesn't just leave at the end of the mm. Golden Age. She sticks around and watches this decay. But we don't get to see really what are her opinions on it. Is she trying to resist it? Or is she trying to um, form a better world within these confines? So yeah, having a little bit more about this process, maybe of her disillusionment as she tries and fails to help people, I think there's definitely a real hero narrative there that we could make. Yeah, and that we like miss out on. And so I'd love to I'd love to have some more of that kind of thing. That isn't just like Hercules squashes crab. <laughs> um, so how about you, Jordan? Where did you take this retcon? Yeah, this one was kind of hard for me until I just 
pressed the rewind button, and I thought, I think my reconciliation was we just stop right there. Maybe Zeus doesn't win. Maybe we just stay in the golden age. Maybe Estrella still in charge. And we don't have to go through this whole fall of man narrative. So my reconciliation is the prophecy doesn't come true. The prophecy that Zeus is going to overthrow <laughs> Cronus. And instead, we have a world that's been progressing peacefully with technological advances for thousands of years. And at this point, since society's been going so perfectly, we even have colonized other planets. For instance, <laughs> the nearest one that we've decided to call Astraea, in honor of the person who kept us on track. So in my Rhett constellation, things go very differently all the way from the beginning. And at this point, we are a galactic civilization with colonies named after Astraea and all of these other figures that kind of mm -hmm. just get thrown into the bucket. I, I mean, I like it. I think that circumventing some of this like feeling as though the downfall of man is inevitable and it has to happen and sort of like not using myth to explain it and instead sort of saying like well that doesn't have to happen like not creating this self-fulfilling prophecy and maybe creating something more hopeful and positive is kind of what we need right now. All right, Kit, time to wrap things up by getting a little less serious and a lot sillier here in our final segment, Pop Culture Superstars. In this segment, we share our favorite and least favorite occurrences of this month's constellation in pop culture, and then we wish upon a star for what we think should exist. All right, there's not a lot going on in Libra. So do you want to start with your favorite, Jordan? And we can kind of see what we came up with. Sure, yeah, let's see if we have any overlap or anything like okay. that. So I had to do a lot of digging to mm. find my favorite. And eventually, what won my heart was a cricket team called <laughs> the Libra Legends, mm -hmm. who competed in a UAE tournament in 2020. It was a five-game tournament. They also competed against other constellation-themed named mm -hmm. cricket teams. And what I liked about them, besides the alliterative name, I went on to their mm -hmm. Instagram, and they have these really great pink and fuchsia uniforms. Mm -hmm. So I like them for the aesthetics alone. Um, wow. I also looked into the results of this tournament. It looks like yeah. the Libra Legends uh, played five games and lost all five games. <laughs> um, conveniently, or perhaps non-coincidentally, the domain LibraLegends.com is yeah. now for sale for $2,495. So I looked into wow, it. They no longer have an official website, but they were a cricket team that performed very poorly in one major event in the UAE and had awesome pink uniforms. That was on my short list of least favorites, but you've convinced me. I didn't look at the uniforms and it was on there only because like, I just do not understand cricket. Like I don't understand the rules. I do not know how the sport works, but uh, these uniforms sound amazing. And it is a, it is a good name. And I love alliteration uh, as, as listeners will have already realized. I give all of the things that I create alliterative <laughs> yeah. names. 
What yeah. fave kit? What did you pick for your most favorite Libra? So this is a bit of a roundabout um, thing here. So basically, as opposed to my cricket team, which is not a roundabout <laughs> at all. Yeah. Well, to get to Libra is a little. It takes mm. a little while. So there's a Swiss company that has a brand called Libresse. But in Australia, the same brand is called Libra. So this brand is in Australia known as Libra. The brand makes menstruation products and recently released some really cool, like really inclusive ads that try to break down stigma around menstruation. And they've also done some work on advocacy around menstruation pain and how people experience that and why it's not taken seriously and how it's sort of dismissed by the medical community. And so, yeah, it seems like a brand that's really focused on inclusivity and focused on breaking down stigma. And so that for me, I'm like, okay, Libra, the period products brand, I'm here for you. And uh, this seems generally positive. All right. So those are our favorites. Now let's move on to our least favorites. Mm -hmm. I'll go first. Not a lot to choose from here. And then the thing that really popped out to me, which mm -hmm. was this novel called Libra by Don DeLillo, who's more mm -hmm. famously known for writing White Noise. And this novel just describes the life of Lee Harvey Oswald and his participation in the fictional CIA conspiracy to assassinate President John F. Kennedy. And it's a novel mm -hmm. that sort of blends historical fact with fictional supposition. It casts Lee Harvey Oswald as the hero slash anti-hero mm -hmm. of the story. And it might be a great novel. I never actually read it, but I think we can see pretty clearly the past 30 years since it is published, conspiracy theory narratives mm -hmm. in American culture and sort of the damage that is wrought. So even though it might be like a literary fiction conspiracy type of novel, I'm kind of just like when we started with Capricorn One. Capric when we started with Capricorn One, I'm kind of just all out on things that perpetuate conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. um, so that was definitely my least favorite. But how about Perhaps you? even just so that was also on my list. Um, what I ended up going with was. The cryptocurrency formerly known as Libra. Yes, I saw um, this. <laughs> yeah, so now it, it is or was called Diem. It was a crypto run by Facebook. Oof. I It sounds like maybe it's defunct. Like, I'm like, this just sounds sketch. And listen, we've discussed before, we're not in on the crypto game. Maybe there are things that we just don't, you know, maybe there's things I'm just not understanding. But um, I'm like, I don't know why Facebook needs to be in crypto. So yeah, that's what I went with. I think that's a pretty good summary of our personalities. We are in on fuchsia uniforms and mm -hmm. pro-menstruation messaging. <laughs> and we are out on conspiracy theories right. and cryptocurrencies. <laughs> that's what, that's just us in a nutshell. That's the new that's gonna be the new summary of the podcast on our Twitter and our Mastodon. Perfect. Alright, kid. I think that's a great choice. Um, yeah, and you're right. I did not see that it was Facebook owned and uh, yeah. mm -hmm. produced. So that just increases the cringe factor by a whole nother level. <laughs> right. Okay, great. And this one was hard to figure out what we wished existed. Mm-hmm. I think we both talked about this a little bit beforehand without revealing what we actually chose. 
Yeah, sure. I'll go first. So one idea that I had was call something sort of more conceptual and theoretical. You know, we have the like countdown clock, we have the Bechdel test, and I'd like to add to the mix the Libra limit, which is, yeah, so this is going to be used to understand and discuss the level of sort of dysfunction in a society. But the scale is basically like, would Zeus approve or not approve? And of course, yeah. you got the alliteration in there too, which I of course, yes, <laughs> always. <laughs> Another idea that I had was sort of similar to or related to my pop culture favorite, and uh, it's the Lee Bra. Wow, I like where this <laughs> is going. And it is custom made bras for asymmetrical breasts, of which most folks have asymmetrical breasts. And so usually, you know, on bra fitting sites, they'll be like, you know, just get the cup that fits the larger breast. And instead, the Lee bra is a custom one that you can get to fit uh, fit each of your breasts. So that is, <laughs> is my other idea. I think that's brilliant. I think that's actually really, really good. <laughs> I think these are both way better than what I came up with. First of all, in terms of alliteration and functionality. The one I came up with was what I wished existed was I was thinking about lie detectors and the polygraph. And we've sort of Mm -hmm. had this thing for like 60, 70 years. And we know it's not right a lot of the time. Mm. So Mm. surely we can do better with all this technology, mm-hmm. with all this artificial intelligence. So yeah, I guess what I wanted was maybe an updated lie detector that has perhaps more than a 50% chance of <laughs> getting things right. Um, yeah. And the thing that I spent the most amount of time working on was the acronym. Of so course. it stands wait. for... I was really hoping there was an acronym. Oh, I was like, okay, great, can't wait. Great. I'm ready. So it stands for lies inconsistencies, bias, revealed always. So this is the Libra oh. lie detector. And next time we're approving Supreme Court judges or someone <laughs> of that nature, we will make them take the Libra lie detector test so that they don't say one thing, then get the job, and ooh, two years later do the exact opposite. Oh, the acronym is so good. I feel every acronym I've tried to come up with on this show has been just a dumpster fire. And this one is so good. It's a great idea. It's kind of remarkable we don't have a better system for, like, lie detection and those kinds of things. So, yeah, this I do also wish that this existed. Well, Kit, it's only a matter of time before one of our wishes comes true. Thank you for joining us today as we learn all about the constellation Libra. Next month on Starry Time, we'll be learning about Scorpius, the scorpion of the night sky. This has been Kit and Jordan, sisters, lovers of stories and stars, and we'll see you next time on Starry Time.